Today, we're continuing in our sermon series, looking at the book of Matthew, following along with the Revised Common Lectionary, and wondering what it means to be a people who are not just content with surviving, but who are content with thriving by the values of God and in God's kingdom. We're picking up right where we left off last week with Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46, Uh, there's been a conversation right before this. Jesus tells two parables in a row. The first one was about two brothers. We talked about that last week. And then this week is a parable about a landowner. Yet again, another landowner in another vineyard. So let's listen for the word of the Lord. Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Yet he sent other slaves more than the first and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? The chief priests and the elders said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. Friends, please join me as we pray and ask for God's spirit to fill our hearts and to fill us with wisdom. Please pray with me. God, it is your spirit that we long for. It is your heart that we want to know. So please pour out that spirit on us. Please fill us with your heart that we might be a people who live by the values of your kingdom and who abide by the morals of your soul. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever known someone who believed something so assuredly that they could not be convinced that what they believed was actually false. In 1938, Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister of the United Kingdom. And at that time, the UK was only one generation removed from the horrors of World War I, which had killed nearly a million Britons. And in 1938, they found themselves once again on the brink of yet another armed conflict 
with Germany, no one, no one wanted to repeat that horrific violence. Adolf Hitler had just annexed Austria earlier in the year and had vowed to invade Czechoslovakia on October 1st, 1938 in his pursuit of creating what he called a greater Germany. So despite their anguish, the people of London prepared for yet another war. They were boarding up windows, crowding inside of Westminster Abbey, praying for peace, stacking up traffic as Londoners began to leave the city in exodus. Then, just two days before that deadline, Hitler agreed to meet in Munich with Chamberlain, Mussolini, and the French premier de Ladier, where they signed an agreement. Hitler would only take a little bit of Czechoslovakia. He'd leave the rest. And then separately, Chamberlain managed to get Hitler to sign a non-aggression pact between Britain and Germany. It was a diplomatic breakthrough. They all celebrated because finally Hitler would be stopped. World War II would be averted. Now, Winston Churchill and others within Chamberlain's government tried to convince Chamberlain to look at the facts just a little differently. After all, Hitler had proved himself to be completely unreliable. They called attention to time and time again when Hitler uh, had made these kinds of agreements and then had gone back on them to the way that Hitler was continually building massive arsenal of tanks and weaponry to the fact that Hitler never slowed or altered that powerful rhetoric of aggression. Quite the opposite. It had started to increase. They did everything they could to try and convince Chamberlain of what they knew to be true, that this agreement with Hitler was a farce. However, Chamberlain could not be convinced. He would not change his mind. News of the agreements reached London before he got there. And so Chamberlain returned as a hero. From the second floor window of his residence on Downing Street, Chamberlain addressed the crowd and he said this, my good friends, this is the second time in our history that there has come back from Germany to Downing Street, peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. And then he added, now I recommend that you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. And as they slept, Hitler marched into Czechoslovakia in that peaceful conquest. And then six months later, Hitler annexed the rest of Czechoslovakia before crossing into Poland. And less than a year after Chamberlain had returned with those agreements in his hand, he stood again before his nation to call for a British declaration of a war against Germany, which launched that second world war. Eight months later, Chamberlain was forced to resign and Winston Churchill took his place. And all of us who have followed 
in looking back on history ever since, have been able to see how plainly Chamberlain was played the fool. Alice Walker once said, people do not wish to appear foolish. To, appear, to avoid the appearance of foolishness, they are willing to remain actual fools. Soren Kierkegaard once said, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true and the other is to refuse to believe what is true. Chamberlain managed to do both at the same time. He believed the agreement to be true when it wasn't, and he refused to believe what everyone else knew to be true about Hitler. Willingly being the fool in this moment so that he could avoid appearing foolish to himself. It's often really easy for us to point out the fool when the fool is someone else, to shake our heads at others' willful obstinance, to avoid reconsidering what is clearly a flawed belief. But it is very difficult for us to see ourselves clearly when we are the ones who are being the fool. The truth is that it's not easy for us to force ourselves to reconsider the things that we desperately want to be true or for us to honestly face our own foolishness when we are behaving like fools. Sometimes we too would rather remain actual fools than to be faced honestly with our foolish thoughts and behaviors and beliefs. Friends, that dynamic of avoiding seeing ourselves clearly, that dynamic is what's happening in our scripture here for today. Jesus is still talking to the chief priests and the elders about authority. They had asked him to tell them by what authority he was parading around in Jerusalem in the face of Roman authority, by what authority he was overturning the tables in the temple, which went in the face of their authority, and by what authority he could wither whole fig trees into a useless piece of shrubbery, violating the authority of nature. Jesus answers their question about authority with a question of his own. And then he follows up by telling a story of the two brothers. We talked about that last week where one of the brothers is given an instruction and says to the father, no, I'm not going to do it. And then he thinks better of it. He goes back and does it. And then the other brother says that he will go do what the father asks, but never got off his seat. And then right after that, he tells this story about the violent and the greedy farmhands who rent a vineyard from a distant landowner and who refused to pay their lease with the first fruits of the crop, which was the agreement. When the landowner's servants come to collect, the farmhands beat them, kill them, stone them. And so when the landowner sends his son, believing that they will respect the authority that the son holds, the farmhands seize the son kill him and throw him outside of the property, continuing to live on the landowner's property for free as though they are the ones who own it. When Jesus finishes the story, he asks the chief priests and the elders, 
what the owner of the vineyard will do to the tenants when he returns. To which the chief priests and the elders confidently reply. They say, he'd kill them. They're a rotten bunch and good riddance. And then he'll assign the vineyard to farm hands who will hand over the profits when it's time. To which Jesus says, you're absolutely right. And this is the way it is with you. God's kingdom will be taken back from you and handed over to a people who will live out a kingdom life. The passage finishes with a dawn of understanding upon the faces of the chief priests and the elders. Turns out this story that they were looking at from afar, turns out that Jesus had written the story about them. Jesus had written them into becoming the very people that they were judging. They know now beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus' story was aimed at them and they are deeply offended. They wanted to arrest Jesus, put him in jail, but then they were afraid because you know, the people, the crowds, they don't want a pitchfork situation. So friends, do you see what's happening here? The chief priests and the elders, they clearly understand what Jesus, that Jesus had written them into being the moral of the story. He is saying that they are acting like the farmhands, not abiding by the agreement that they have with the owner and not respecting the authority of the son. They get it, they understand, and they reject it. Like Churchill to Chamberlain, Jesus is trying to get them to reconsider where they are placing their faith. And like Chamberlain to Churchill, the chief priests and the elders are so invested in their own beliefs and their own perceptions that they disregard Jesus' assertion that they are acting like the farmhands at all. And they disregard that at the very same time, in the very moment where they are plotting to arrest Jesus and hand him over to be killed. To us, reading this story all of these years after it's told, it's sort of unbelievable that the chief priests and the elders are living out the same actions as the farmhands in the moment that they are denying that they are acting like the farmhands. It's unbelievable that they would do this and not become a little more self-aware. But all the same, when we think about it, it's not really that hard to see why the chief priests and the elders would resist or why they would reject the assertion of Jesus that they are acting like violent farmhands. Because when we think about it and put ourselves in that situation, in the stories that we hear, in the narratives that we are told, we never really consider putting ourselves in the position of the fool or the villain. We always want to put ourselves in the position of being the hero. And it was the exact same thing for the chief priests and the elders. They're not naturally going to see themselves as the fools or as the villains. They're naturally going to see themselves as the heroes. In the same way that we don't write ourselves into these foolish positions, or we don't consider ourselves to have anything in common with violent characters, we don't consider ourselves that way because we know that we are good people who are trying to do the right thing. 
Fools are so often willingly short-sighted and villains are so often purposefully violent and self-serving. That can't ever be us. We would never do that. We're good people and we're doing our best to fulfill our calling that is extended before us. We can't be the farmhands. We're trying too hard. Which is just what the chief priests and the elders are thinking too. <laughs> who, is, who is Jesus to tell them about what their intentions are? Why should they accept what this guy says? Now to us, to you and to me, reading this story 2,000 years later, we know why they should accept what Jesus says. <laughs> because Jesus really is the son. Sent not by some distant landowner, but sent by the very real and living God. Because we can see how the chief priests and the elders are being fooled in two different ways, by believing what isn't true and by not believing what is true, we can see that just as easily as we can see Chamberlain being fooled by Hitler. We understand what Jesus is doing when Jesus reminds them of the psalm that says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and is amazing in our eyes. In the story, the son is beaten and pushed out of the vineyard. He is rejected. He is cast aside. And it is from that place outside of the land that the farmhands occupied that a new structure was about to be built. From the rejected one, God was starting something new. And the community of faithful believers that have followed Jesus from that first resurrection day have inhabited that new structure ever since. That's why we can see so clearly what's happening. All of us since that first resurrection day have been written in to this new story through the grace and the power of Jesus. That means we can see the old story really clearly. Which makes me want us to consider three questions, three quick questions, and then we'll be done. One, in the same way that history can read Chamberlain and Churchill and clearly see who was playing the fool, in the same way that we can read the scriptures and clearly see who's playing the villain. How do we want to be read by the eyes that are going to see us? What are the things that we believe so surely that we can't be coaxed to consider otherwise? And by believing those things, are we being made the fool? Are we being framed as the villain? What choices in our lives have us twice playing the fool? And more importantly, question number two, how is it that Jesus reads us? If Jesus were to write us into one of his short stories, if Jesus were going to put us into one of his parables, then what character would he make you? What character do you think he would make me? Would we be the brother who balked at the command of the father, but eventually obeyed? 
Would we be the woman who persistently argued with the judge in order to secure herself justice? Would we be the wealthy man who commands Lazarus to leave heaven so that Lazarus can serve him in hell? Would we be these farmhands refusing to offer back the first fruits of a life that was entrusted into our care, choosing instead to live as though we own everything that we touch? everything that was really just ever loaned to us. We can't change the past as we consider who we might be written as in a parable, as we consider how the future might judge us once we are made history. We can't change the past, but we can make decisions for our future. Which leads us to the final question I want us to consider. If we could decide how we want Jesus to write our story, if we could decide how we want future generations to read our histories, then what do we have to let go of that is making us the fool? What do we have to reconsider that is drawing us to be comfortable with violence? What choices do we have to start making now in our lives in order to live out the narratives that make us feel good, that make us echo the Imago Dei, that make us shine with God's face? Friends, as we consider the narratives of our lives to this date. And as we look ahead to what narrative is going to be created by the choices that we make today, I pray for you and for me that we will keep the primary primary, that we will judge ourselves by the moral of God, that we will be the ones who can sit happily next to Jesus for eternity, and look back and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Please join me as we pray. God, we ask that you will help us to live into a narrative that is pleasing to you, and that you will awaken us to the times that we are intentionally or willfully blind to our foolishness, that you will convict us to the ways that we have come to embrace violence, rudeness, harshness, all things that are against the fruit of the Spirit. Help us to be the people who reflect your light in the times where everyone is watching and everyone will know, but also in the times where it's just you and us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.